Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Your food bill's about to go up as food inflation kicks in. Can we blame the pandemic for all of this? No, it is just one factor. We'll break down the complexities of this vaccine operation with the Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who joins the show. And Christian Freeland says she wants those with savings to hand it over so that her government can start building back better. Lock up your money, kids. They're coming after it. Let's get talking. Some Canadian households, and it tends to be the better off households, do have quite a lot of money that they've saved because there hasn't been that much to do in the pandemic. And certainly it would be great if that money could go towards driving our recovery. And I want to make an offer now to all of your listeners. If people have ideas on how the government can act to help unlock that preloaded stimulus, I am very, very interested. Maybe, as Doug Porter was suggesting, it happens by itself. That's the best case scenario for me. But if people have ideas on how we can really, you know, try to unleash that and particularly unleash it in the parts of the Canadian economy that really need support, tourism, hospitality, domestic services, uh, let me know. Lock up your money, folks. Sounds to me like the Trudeau government is looking for ways to take it. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, December 8th. And uh, welcome in. And today, you know, one of those days, it's a where were you moments in history kind of day. And I remember this day clearly. I was only nine years old, you know, standing on the landing of the stairs coming down when my dad uh, stood at the bottom step and just looked in disbelief and said, John Lennon has been murdered. Uh, murdered. And I was a massive Beatles fan as a kid because my dad was a huge music fan. So, you know, we always listen to music. So it's one of those moments that sticks out with you. But we're, we're talking 40 years. 40 years, that's a long time. You really start to feel your age and how quickly it came. But it kind of just seems like yesterday. And we'll talk about it a bit later in the show. I mean, I, hate, I may have hated his politics, but he was a, a pretty genius songwriter and creator. And I, I'd be curious, where would he be today? Would he still be a major activist? Would the Beatles have gotten together again? I don't know. Would, his, uh, would John Lennon have stood the test of time as his music has? I mean, his music, it's, it's still as big today as it was back then. We'll talk about it a little bit later in the show. But I want to talk about the comment, the odd comment that the finance minister said, and I heard it over the weekend. I was like, what? Am I hearing this right? Is our finance minister, you know, suggesting that those who made money during this pandemic or, I don't know, put a little away in a bank, that should be handed over to stimulate the economy that her government helped drive into the ground? Because it sure, it sure sounds like that. 
And I'm not sure how the Trudeau government knows what is in our bank accounts other than the billions they overpaid uh, through programs like CERB to Canadians who didn't need it. But, I mean, she is asking for ideas of what to do with our money, so I've got a couple. I mean, first, keep your hands off of ours and stop wasting so much rushing billions out the door, you know, and checked. And then the other the idea that I've got is if you want Canadians to part with their cash, then give us confidence to want to spend rather than sock it away. Because if people aren't confident, they don't trust what you're doing, they won't spend. And given we're told this government is very positive about their economic vision and the strength of our country's economy, which they talk about all the time, then they should have no problem convincing people that it's okay to spend. That would be the true way to help stimulate the economy. You build confidence in it. Or I guess as Freeland seems to be suggesting, and what Pierre Polyevrod was talking about in the House today, you know, you just kind of hand it over to them. The finance minister is a big idea and it, it involves your bank account. She's very worried that Canadians are saving too much, even though those same savings are lent out to and invested in other job-creating businesses. So now she's looking for ideas on how the government can act to unlock those savings of Canadians. Does the government really believe that holding Canadians upside down by the ankles and shaking their change loose is a stimulus plan? Mm-hmm. And since they determined to build back better, you know, seize the government, that's what they said, uh, I think we should be ready for just about anything, including either a hike to the HST or, or the GST, which I hear kind of being floated around. Uh, and while they dispute, you know, the great reset is a thing. I mean, in the last few days, there has been a big reset in the finance office, which I think serves as a bit of a warning of the shakeup to come. And first, the guy who had the position up until a, a couple of days ago, he was a guy named Paul Rochon, and he quit very suddenly after the fiscal update was released, like the next day. And according to reports, it's because, you know, he wasn't on board with ignoring these huge deficits in favor of massive never-ending spending. And so he made it known, and he goes under the bus. That bus has got to be the most crowded bus ever. And then in comes a guy named Michael Sabia who's been appointed to Freeland uh, as the deputy finance minister. And who is he? Well, I mean, he's a very loyal liberal. He's a yes man. So the appointment is very political. And uh, he did and has worked in the government before, way back in the day. And uh, he has worked and was charged with overseeing Canada's disastrous uh, infrastructure bank more recently. And that thing has been a colossal failure. It failed to get any of the 52,000 projects started. And now it can't account for 22,000 projects that just kind of vanished. But he's also become very successful in the private sector. And so I guess, I mean, he does have the experience. But key to his appointment is that he thinks just like Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland. So he won't say no to their ambitious plans of overhauling Canada. And he made it clear back in March where he wrote an op-ed and completely supports what they're doing, called for massive spending to rebuild after the pandemic, calling it, quote, a precious opportunity to shape our future economy and that we should never let a good crisis go to waste. And he won't because he's a yes man. He'll say yes to massive post-pandemic spending, yes to big deficits, and likely yes to Christopher Freeland's suggestion that those who have savings just hand them over. Or... They'll just take it through more taxes. And it's one thing for her to push these things. I mean, she'll be held to account by the voters, but 
he's been handed a role that should be fairly neutral where, you know, you need people who push back against big spending, crazy ideas. You, you want that. And he won't. He's all into this seizing of the moment of endless spending with, you know, very little concern about dumping the mess onto our kids. And the big thing is that he and Freeland and Trudeau are, are counting on us not noticing it. And many likely won't because we're going into the Christmas holidays, we're heading into the second wave, we're all quarantining, got lots of distractions. A lot of people won't notice it, but you should keep an eye on that. So we'll chat about this tonight. Also have Vice Admiral Mark Norman coming on with me at 8 o'clock. I finally got him. So we're going to talk to him about the uh, rollout of this vaccine by the military. He's got some interesting insight into it. And I'm going to zero in on a story I think that is uh, getting not enough attention but broke in the Globe and Mail and really speaks to the issue of why big pharma it doesn't even bother to invest in this country anymore and uh, and why we're losing out on real, real health innovation like vaccine development. And uh, according to the Globe sources, the Trudeau government passed over a uh, private sector option which could have produced COVID-19 vaccines here by the end of 2020. But instead... The Trudeau government poured $170 million of their dollar or our dollars into a government-run production facility. And of course, it's a year late in being revamped. But this small private company, all it needed was minor upgrades. And they say, yeah, we could have produced millions of vaccines by this month. But the Trudeau government doubled down. So determined were they to do this deal with China and have the government facility produce vaccines. They poured everything on that. And so the deal falls through with China. Now we have nothing, but we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars to buy vaccines outside of this country. And we could have done it here. And I don't know where this story is going, but it's pretty darn shady that you have a facility in Quebec that's already saying, yeah, we could have had millions of doses here already internally. But they put all their chips on an untrustworthy, uh, you know, anything but an ally, and then poured all this money into a government facility that, of course, can't stick to a deadline, that is more than a shame. It's uh, negligible. You know, one of the greatest times of need in this country, the most important basics of necessity are going to go up in cost. And this is according to the uh, 2021 Canada food price report forecasts, which put out the costs expected at grocery stores. And they say it's going to go up as much as 5%. So for a family of four, the example is you're going to spend on average 13907 on food for the year, and you'll spend another $695 on top of that. And it comes, of course, when we're dining out less and cooking up a lot more and at a time when grocery stores are breaking record sales and the little people are just getting hurt more and more and whose financial instability is anything but stable. So what is driving this food inflation? Because it is not just the pandemic. Let us ask. John Keogh, founding and managing principal over at Chantella, whose experience is in supply chains. And you alerted to me, to me John, you alerted me to this yesterday morning, kind of warning the waving uh, flags. And uh, this is a bit of a, this is a big hit. 
Yes, it is. Thanks for help, having me, uh, Alex. Um, you know, I would describe it as living in a pressure cooker. And uh, this is exactly, you can call it a social pressure cooker, an economic pressure cooker, but something has to give at some point. Reality still has to set in about what's happening economically for sure. And I think that's going to take another 12 months. Uh, the pressure is coming in for consumers from all sides. And as I mentioned previously, when we look at supply chains and food chains, we have to take a systems view because uh, we, we have what, it, what we call the cascading consequences of system failures. And what that means is if you have hundreds of thousands of people that are shut out of their industry, like travel and tourism and food service, they're not spending money and the whole system is under pressure. So I think something is going to happen significantly in, uh, in 2021 and it's not going to be as rosy as we think. Right. And so what is the cause of this? I mean, I'm sure the pandemic is one cause, but we've also seen, I mean, we've got the clean fuel tax, uh, I think it's in now, we've got other things that are driving up costs of food. Uh, what is the main culprit here? Is it just the instability? Well, there, there are many things. There's the, the different uh, externalities that, that are happening. Um, we have, when we look at uh, produce, we import a lot from California. And in California, we have uh, wildfires. And, and the, the, the issues that we have uh, here in Canada with firms paying for, you know, more PPE and more precautions, they have those in California as well. So our suppliers from other countries will also have more costs. Those costs will be passed on to Canadian buyers. And in Canada, we have that cost again because we're handling for a second time. So we have like we're doubling and tripling up on these PPE or external costs. We also have, of course, the uh, outbreaks in plants that still hasn't uh, gone away completely. And uh, and I think we're, we're again, this pressure cooker concept, I think, is, is, is where we're heading to. Yeah, and don't forget, I mean, I know it's 2020, we seem to have forgotten all the things that happened before this pandemic. We had the rail blockade, which, uh, you know, really tied things up for a long time and slowed things down and had a drag on the economy. There's a whole bunch of variables that have been happening for quite some time before this pandemic, and it's all coming home to roost at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things happening. There's, uh, you know, working from home right now. Food companies are trying to figure out, okay, who from our staff can work at home? Uh, I spoke to one of the Longo brothers a few months ago, and he said, look, I would never have considered this for our staff. Uh, but he said, this is the most amazing thing. Our people have risen to the, the challenge. And he said, he's seen exceptional performance from people. So essentially what has happened, Alex, for corporate leaders like, like Longo's, for example, a great example, they have been forced to trust their staff and their yeah. staff are stepping up and they're doing a tremendous job. But and the, another thing that, uh, that Mr. Longo mentioned, this I, think, this I think is very important, the speed to adapt by the retailers. He said, we made the decision to put up the, uh, the screens at the cashiers within four days. That would have taken right. us eight months before. So yeah. these are good things. So we're learning going through this process as well. As well. We are. And again, the things that we all thought were so impossible. It's amazing what happens when you pull the rug out from everywhere and say, deal with it. And it's amazing how quickly we were all, including the radio business. I mean, I do a whole radio show out of a den in my house in, in under 24 hours. And, and that's been going on in every industry where you just pivot and change. Are the supply chains, though, I mean, we're in the second wave now. Are they secure? <clears throat> um Supply chains are still secure. I think we're going to have, if, if I can separate out food security nationally, we're food secure in Canada. 
primarily. We, we don't have many major issues. We do have issues with what I call food uncertainty because right. we still don't have a digital ecosystem where we have interoperability between different trading partners. So essentially, Alex, as we talked about before, we have the food. We just don't know where it is. Now, on the consumer side, because of the rising costs, we will have a food insecurity in certain categories of, of consumers. So that is still a concern. It's a food uns- uh, uncertainty in the supply chain but it's a food insecurity issue because of affordability. Yeah, I I mean, you know, and and this has a ripple effect because as you well know, food bank use is at an all-time record. I mean, they're seeing people that they've never seen. I mean, there are thousands more relying on food banks. So when you see grocery prices going up, anybody who runs a shelter system or any kind of charity that deals with making sure people are fed, that is going to have a huge impact on them. Absolutely. And we live in a diverse uh, society here in Canada and, 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 you know, certainly here in Toronto. And we have people who can't afford food, who are going to the food banks and have to make a choice of taking a food to, uh, to basically to survive versus a faith-based, uh, their faith-based uh, uh, beliefs. So in other words, you may have a Muslim family accepting a pork product or yeah. something else like that. So these are the things that when we talk about food security, we have to break it down into the faith-based groups as well. So the food banks right. may not be food secure for some of the faith-based groups. And that's something that we have overlooked. Yeah, it is a, an issue and no question. And then, of course, there are mothers when you're talking formula and diapers and all that stuff. That get that also already very expensive, but it will have a big hit. John, I appreciate you giving me the heads up on this and uh, we'll see where it takes us. But you did warn, so I do appreciate that. No problem. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. John Keogh uh, joining. And he has been warning about this for a few months. And so he always kind of flags me. Hey, did you see this? Did you see that? And I don't oh, oh, yuck. It's going to hurt people. This is going to be the freezer where the vaccine's being stored. And uh, we're, we're ready. And I, I just want to thank UHN and the team here for doing such a great job, as always. All right, that was Doug Ford, the premier who is touring uh, the facility that will store our Pfizer vaccines once it starts arriving sometime next week, which is what we're told. And it should be the start of what is going to be the biggest national undertaking we've seen since World War One in this country. And this is a federal initiative, of course, but there are massive challenges that lay ahead because it's going to be delivered provincially in a country that is enormous and certainly not all that easy to get uh, into areas for delivery. So, yeah, lots of challenges with especially the first vaccine of Pfizer because it's got to be refrigerated at minus 80. It can't be jostled around. And that's why the military has been doing dry runs to get the teams used to handling this precarious cargo this week as they try to figure out, you know, how are we going to get these vaccines into northern communities? How are we going to get them into long term care all in a timely manner? Because after all. It is a vaccine that requires double dose. Very happy to have this man on the show, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former Chief of Naval Staff and Vice Chief of Defense Staff. He joins us now. Good to have you, finally. Hey, good afternoon, Alex, and uh, I hope you and your listeners are well. And uh, this is exciting but uh, concerning news as we look to the, the coming months. If you can put and characterize how enormous this operation is, uh, you know, it, it's challenging, no? Well, yeah, it's a massive uh, undertaking, and I think your uh, your introductory comments really capture the essence of the challenge. We're looking at um, a variety of different constituencies across the country. We're looking at uh, specific regional and, and uh, local uh, challenges related to 
the actual logistics of distribution at different systems with different procedures. Uh, we're looking at remote areas. Let's not forget that uh, winter is upon us and uh, the, the environmental factors associated with that are probably going to hamper some of these efforts. Um, and yes, and, and uh, this, is a, this is an appropriate use of the Canadian forces, in my opinion. It is, right? Because some people say, you know, maybe this isn't a role that the military should have been called on to do. I have zero doubt that the military will deliver. Um, but there are people who say, look, this is going to drain resources and leaning on the military takes them away from other areas. I mean, when you think about the Moderna and the other uh, vaccines, they're supposed to come in, according to General Hillier, when we're right in the brunt of spring, which is flood season in this country. And so our resources for vaccines are going to be taken out of areas that normally the military would serve. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's important that we we recognize that it's not a binary scenario. It's not an either-or scenario. And the military planners are very capable and adept at looking at, you know, how they can, re- how they can keep uh, in reserve uh, the resources they may need to deal with those uh, potential scenarios that we see frequently in, in the spring months. But I think the focus right now is on having an ironclad plan, a robust plan for the distribution of the vaccine. Uh, we're seeing um, the uh, conduct of some dry runs, and I, I'm quite confident that there'll be multiple practices over the coming days and weeks to ensure that they've got the details ironed out. But I don't think people should be overly concerned. I think the military is more than capable of dealing with uh, more than one thing at a time, and uh, they'll just have to be careful who they allocate to which task. And, and you you talk and say the word plan, um, but this is a government that has been quite quiet and not big on details of, of this vaccination and, and what's going on. We get a lot of good talking points, but not a lot of uh, meat on the bone. And, and we know that the military, because we've learned over the last couple of weeks, they work on Assumptions. Do you get the sense that during this operation, the military is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting and eventually just have to say, look, this is how we're going to do it. Um, you know, just take whatever hits come their way with all the uncertainty. Well, I, you know, using assumptions is um, both a legitimate and common practice in military planning. Um, and as you get more facts, uh, you turn those assumptions into realities or you dismiss them as being uh, non-factual and you, you adjust the plan accordingly. I think, uh, I think you're going to see a variety, a ver- uh, quite a range of potential situations because I think it's going to depend on what the specific requirements are across the different provinces and, and different areas uh, in Canada. I think more isolated areas with uh, less robust uh, logistics capabilities are probably going to see more reliance on the military in those areas where perhaps a, uh, a commercial uh, logistics capability or something that is already established and uh, is up to the task will be uh, relied upon in, uh, in those areas. And I don't know what those differences are going to be, but I suspect that's what we're going to see as this rolls out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, because right now we know that there are 14 locations across this country where the uh, vaccine will be sent, certainly the Pfizer, because you have to have these big uh, cold refrigerators um, and and they will be in urban centers. But, you know, you talk about indigenous communities. We're talking about long term care facilities. These people can't just walk into Toronto, um, you know, or big urban centers. Do you get the sense that at some point uh, and fairly soon that the military will be able to get these vaccines to those areas, the more vulnerable people who really need it first? 
Well, I think it'll be uh, up to the individual provinces to decide what role they want the military to perform. But yes, I think your scenario is is quite possible. I, I don't know if it'll happen for sure. But what's I think important for your listeners to understand is a couple of things. First of all, the military uh, structure for domestic operations is uh, re- based on regional uh, organizations, and therefore they have highly integrated um, systems with the various provinces already for a variety of natural uh, disasters and potential operations. So th- this this is now an unquestionably uh, new challenge, but we can use the existing structures. I think the, exi- the other thing that's important to look at is the fact that the military is used to um, these types of logistical operations. Um, the distribution of fuel, ammunition, food, uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, this is the kind of thing that the military plans for uh, in their own operations. And so we've got, a, I think, a very good combination of existing structures, uh, an existing set of disciplines and protocols, and yes, a very unprecedented uh, situation with a lot of unanswered questions. But it should, it should all come together in the coming weeks. And the Ford government today reached out to officials in Michigan asking, you know, if we can get some officials on the ground in that country to watch them roll out their vaccines. I mean, you likely know that uh, the American military, I mean, they, they've built warp speed over a series of months, $12 billion. I mean, they've been planning for a very, very long time. Is that normal uh, among allies? Yes, very much so. And this is all about, um, you know, observing best practices and, and uh, learning those lessons because, I mean, that's the ideal way is to, is to learn the lessons from others and then practice it um, as we were seeing play out this week, incorporate those lessons and then modify the plan. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what's going to happen. What would your biggest concern be? I mean, the government of the day, the federal government at least, um, I think the one big failure of all these levels of government is that they don't seem to manage expectations. Uh, I mean, they kind of seem to want us to live on hope. What would your biggest concern be? And, and as far as realistic timelines that Canadians should expect? Well, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a senior or former senior military officer, the biggest concern uh, I would have in looking at this would be what we would refer to as the troops to tasks. So looking at exactly what, is uh, potentially required, what could happen in a worst-case scenario in terms of the types of things that would have to be done and ensuring that the right people are available at the right time to do those jobs. On a broader view, I think the concern and and in the essence of your question being that, um, you know, over-promising and under-delivering is is a, a significant risk, and that's perhaps why we're getting a lot of um, ambiguity around this issue uh, at this particular moment in time. Well, it will be the military that uh, I think saves the day in the end. And uh, I think the politicians are counting on that. Vice Admiral Norman, I so much appreciate your time and coming on the show tonight. Thank you, Alex, and all the best to you and your listeners. Take care. Thank you. We'll have you on again. And of course, if you miss the show, you can download it. 640 Toronto, go to On Point in your favorite podcast app. All of this stuff will be on it. So we will continue watching. Coming up next, we'll get into our counterpoint. We'll bat this topic around and all the others. Thanks to our friends over at Pizzaville. Here, stay with us. Alex Pearson On Point. This is Global News Radio.
The finance minister has a big idea and it, it involves your bank account. She's very worried that Canadians are saving too much, even though those same savings are lent out to and invested in other job-creating businesses. So now she's looking for ideas on how the government can act to unlock those savings of Canadians. Does the government really believe that holding Canadians upside down by the ankles and shaking their change loose is a stimulus plan? Good to have you here with us on this Tuesday. Is Christian Freeland trying to get into our pockets? Well, Pierre Polyevra seems to think so, because she's asked those with savings socked away to hand it over and help the Trudeau government stimulate the economy. And when I saw it, I thought, this is a pretty crazy idea, because it sounds like a government seizing on this p- pandemic opportunity to overhaul what the Trudeau government clearly sees as broken. And what seems clear in the few days that have just gone by is that the government is going to reset things to some degree. And they've now appointed a liberal-friendly advisor to be Freeland's chief of staff. This is a guy named Michael Savia, who also believes in big, big spending and stated as much back in March saying, hey, we should not let a good crisis go to waste. And who will not say no to any of this government's big uh, spending dreams? Because He doesn't want the spending taps turned off, and he also doesn't care about massive deficits in order to rebuild Canada in a Justin Trudeau progressive vision. Aaron Woodrick is with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now, and I sent you that video and said, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? And it kind of sounds like that's what they want to do. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because they basically are trying to reframe the fact they overshot their target, Alex. I mean, they replaced every dollar of lost income from Canadians with $7 that they borrowed. And now it's sitting in people's banks and they're saying, hmm, wouldn't it be great if they could spend it? Well, first of all, the only way they can get people to they can get that money for sure is to tax it away. Um, and as for why people aren't spending it, well, look around you, right? Uh, people are worried about the future. They're worried about their jobs. And they don't think there's any good investment opportunities. So if the government wants to get people to spend that money, they should fix those things. And then people will probably be happy to uh, to part ways with some of it voluntarily. Right. I mean, everyone's kind of looking at the economy and uh, putting something away for a rainy day. But this government has never been a government to put things away for a rainy day. I mean, you know, I go back to before this pandemic, the deficit was sitting at $27 billion. That was shocking back then. It seems like I would actually beg to go back to those levels at this point with what the, you know, the numbers that we're seeing now. But it is very clear, I think, in what has happened in the last, I'd say, week of movement behind the scenes that seems to suggest they really are going to try to do this this rebuilding of Canada, and the name that comes up is Michael Sabia. Who is he? Yeah, so Michael Sabia is an individual who started his career as a public servant. He spent some time uh, heading up the Quebec Public uh, Pension Fund, the Case de Depot. Um, he, was, uh, he was at uh, the uh, Rotman School at the U- University of Toronto. So this is, a, this is an accomplished fellow. Um, and he's not really a partisan, but he certainly has been in and around the liberal orbit the last few years. And more importantly, from uh, Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland's standpoint, he seems to share their worldview. He is all about spending more money. Uh, you mentioned that op-ed he wrote in March. This was just after the pandemic hit. He wrote an op-ed, Alex, basically saying that when this is all over, government should spend on A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, there was nothing he didn't think government should be doing. So he fits you know, perfectly for Justin Trudeau and, and Christopher Freeland in terms of, of this belief that government and spending piles of money is just going to solve all our problems. I mean, and he also fits in well with the Bank of Canada governor who does uh, does not make any secret about his activist agenda. 
Yeah, look, I think the big concern now in Ottawa is that, uh, you know, whatever your view are, it's everyone is ha- has the same view there now. And I think, you know, in, in a healthy democracy, you have people uh, surrounding people who are in charge that are able to push back, that are able to offer constructive criticism or sort of, you know, push back on assumptions. What you're seeing happening in Ottawa now, Alex, is it, people with the same blind spots all patting each other on the back. And I think that that could end up being very expensive for taxpayers. Right, because the gentleman he has replaced is a, a fellow named Paul Rochon, and um, I guess it was made pretty clear after the, the fiscal update that Christian Freeland delivered. He wasn't at all comfortable with these massive deficits and the fact that there were no, um, you know, nothing in this fiscal update to suggest they were ever going to stop spending. And so there's a guy who would have said, okay, hold on a second. We have to think about things and push back. And clearly that did not work because he exited the next day, and then in comes this new player. And we do need someone to say no once in a while, not because they're mean, but because you have to have some kind of objectivity when it comes to never ending spending of what the plan is going to be for tomorrow to pay it back. Yeah. And I mean, remember, that's sort of the function of the civil service. At the end of the day, they have to do what their political masters want. And I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but they should sort of be there to say, you know what, I understand what your plan is, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you considered this? Rather than someone who's there just to cheerlead everything you want to do. And, and all signs from his public statements and comments are that Mr. Sabia is, is in lockstep with the prime minister in terms of his view about the role of government and what they should be doing after the pandemic. Which seems a little odd because he's a private sector guy and worked for some very, very successful companies um, that you would think that he would see the, um, you know, the necessity of some fiscal restraint. We're not even asking for a lot at this point, but at least some. Um, and he doesn't really believe that. And, and you pointed out to me that he also ran the infrastructure bank. bank. That thing's been riddled. I mean, that thing's been disastrous. Well, look, he was the yeah, he was the chair of the infrastructure bank. In fact, before he became the chair, the bank had only found two projects to fund in three years, and one of them was partnered with the Case de Depot that Sabia was in charge of. So it's like he's the only. It's, it's almost as if the Trudeau government looked around the horizon and they could only find one guy who was working with them on this bank and who was excited about their projects. And they figured, hey, why don't we just get this guy right into finance? That that I mean, it's hard to draw a conclusion otherwise. And there's nothing wrong with that, other than as I said. It's not really a healthy thing when you've got a leader and everybody in his circle saying exactly the same thing and nobody there to sort of raise their hand and say, guys, is this maybe, are we missing something here? Maybe is this maybe not the best idea? Yeah, I mean, the infrastructure bank has $35 billion and you say that they've only managed to find two projects. I mean, there are dozens that are literally missing in action and can't be accounted for. There's as many as 22, uh, we're told, shovel-ready projects that no one can find. That would happen under him. Yeah, and so look, some some of the infrastructure bank, they basically, it's not really a bank anymore, Alex. It's just a pot of money for the things that the federal government wants to spend on. The whole idea in the first place with the infrastructure bank was they would find all these private sector partners who would love to, you know, build a new a toll highway or a hospital or something, and the, the government would provide matching funds. That's all backwards now. Now it's about the government just picking projects like electric buses and hoping yeah. that some, somewhere out there some private sector money wants to jump in, which has not happened. So, you know... It, and, and this is this is another reason to be really worried about what's next is because the Trudeau government's track record up until this point has been a disaster. None of their plans and hopes and dreams for things like the infrastructure bank have panned out. So why on earth should anybody believe that the chances that they're going to get it right, you know, when they're talking not not with thirty five billion dollars, but one hundred billion dollars in new spending that they haven't even figured out what they're going to spend it on yet, that, that some of that money is not going to be wasted.
Not to mention, how is this guy not going to be a walking conflict of interest, given his involvement in so many boards and, and all sorts of things? I mean, it, you know, it's, um, you know, I would think some would say there's a blurred line happening here. Well, I think the problem for, for Mr. Sabia is that he's not representative of the rest of the people in his line of work because he was the only one, like I pointed out, he was the only one of those two projects. You know, it was, it was his organization that, uh, that joined with the infrastructure bank of one. Nobody else wants to do it. And, and that's exactly why the Trudeau government plucked this guy and wanted to get him more involved because he seems to be one of the only people in the business community that is buying into, you know, what the Trudeau government is selling. So I, I, it is, uh, it's a bizarre turn of events. I, I worry a great deal. Um, you know, this is a classic case of people who've got stars in their eyes and think the government's going to fix everything. And, I, you know, you don't have to be a, a hardcore libertarian to see. Look at this government's own track record up to and including the pandemic. They have never managed to hit the targets and results that they claim they could do, get with their spending. And yet here we are, you know, seem, we seem poised to jump into it 10 times worse with no plan, anything other than we want to spend $100 billion, we'll figure out what to spend it on later. Yeah, fun. Hide your money. Hide your houses. It's a coming. <laughs> All right, Aaron, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alex. Aaron Woodward joining us of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So we will wait and see what uh, vision he rules out and how expensive it's going to be. You can join us here live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point on Global News Radio.